Welcome to Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American for the seven days starting February 7th. I'm Steve Mursky. This week on the podcast, just like last week, we'll run the gamut from A to B with guests Yoan Allen and David Biello. Allen is an Oscar winner who is once again being honored by the Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences later this week. But first, we'll hear from Siam.com associate editor David Biello. He's just back from Paris, where he was reporting on the big global warming consensus report last week. I called him at his home in Brooklyn. Hi, Dave. How are you? I'm good, Steve. How are you? I know that you're really not good. You're, you became a little sick over in, on Paris or on the return trip, so I appreciate talking to you. No problem. So you were in Paris for the IPCC. What's the IPCC, first of all? Well, the IPCC stands for the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. It's a uh, world body composed of scientists and uh, diplomats, actually. And uh, the goal is to produce a consensus document that uh, all the world's governments and uh, most of the world's scientists uh, agree to uh, based on the peer-reviewed scientific literature as to what is happening with climate change uh, and then uh, going further, what should be done about it and uh, what will actually happen as a result of it. And this has been all over the news for for the last week. Uh, the report was issued on Friday. Why don't you just bottom line the report for us? Well, first I want to be clear that the report itself has not been released yet. Right. This is the preliminary report. This is the, well, this is actually the part of the report that gets read. Uh, to, <laughs> well, what, what exactly do you mean by called, that? It's called the Summary for Policymakers. Okay. And it's a, uh, about a 14-page document uh, that summarizes everything that's in uh, this voluminous report. Okay. So what was issued was basically an abstract for the full report that will come out in a few months? Yes. If you wanted to put it in, uh, you know, scientific literature terms, it, an abstract is exactly what it is. Okay, so bottom line, the the abstract for us then. Well, the the key finding uh, is that man being responsible for climate change has been bumped up from likely, which uh, the IPCC terms as a 66 percent probability, to very likely, which is a 90 percent uh, probability, uh, meaning that uh, they're they're pretty much certain that uh, we're behind uh, the climate changes that we've already seen and uh, the climate change that uh, we will see going forward. Um, there are still two uh, further, I guess, notches the IPCC can go. I find it kind of amusing. Uh, there is extremely likely, which is a greater than 95% chance, and then uh, virtually certain at uh, greater than 99% probability. Also, was with six years more data, they could give us a best estimate as to what kind of warming we will see if we continue on our present path of uh, putting carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases into the atmosphere. Their best guess is that we will see a three degrees Celsius warming by the end of this century. Uh, three degrees Celsius warming, to put that into some perspective, is according to the Stern report, which is another analysis that came out, uh, about... One to four billion people in the world, or as much as half of human population, suffering water shortages, uh, 550 additional millions at risk of hunger, up to 170 million more people affected by coastal flooding. Um, so that, that particular prognostication is pretty bad. Uh, the other side of that is that no matter what we do, if we stop emitting carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases today, and it no longer rises, 
we will be, we have locked in already 0.6, 0.6 degrees Celsius warming. Um, and that sounds like a small number, but uh, that's enough to uh, unlock some of the ice in Greenland and, and Antarctica and raise sea levels. Um, most of this heat that we're trapping with greenhouse gases is going into the oceans, the world's oceans, roughly 80%. That's causing thermal expansion. That's what's uh, been leading to the sea rise we've already seen. That will continue to uh, accelerate. Um, and pretty much, you know, now that we're very likely the cause, we now know enough that we should be doing something to stop this. Let me ask you about the the, the 0.6% uh, Celsius, uh, it's 0.6 degrees Celsius temperature increase that's locked in is over the next what time period again? It's over the next century. Over the next century. Which is, that's even if we stop all carbon emissions immediately. That's even okay. if we stop all carbon emissions today. Basically, um, pre-industrially, we were at about 280 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. We are now at 379 parts per million of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. To get to that three degrees Celsius warming, that would be a, that would be as a as a result of doubling, so 560 parts per million. Mm-hmm. Uh, obviously, we don't have that much more to go. And carbon dioxide emissions, despite uh, some efforts worldwide, are continuing to rise, uh, thanks in part to U.S. emissions, but also uh, the emissions from developing countries like China and India as they burn coal for uh, home heating and, uh, and, and industry. Mm-hmm. Let me ask you about the, the uh, confidence of 66% human uh, causes for the global warming versus 90% over the the last few years the in, the improved confidence that humans are actually behind global warming because i think this is this is something worth talking about a little bit cuz people might wonder you know where where do those numbers come from sure so it's a it's a question of as the the data sources become richer, your statistical analysis becomes finer, right? Exactly. Um, basically, we now have longer observational records. Those observational records are, uh, you know, more statistically robust. So, you know, uh, for example, in the case of uh, hurricanes, we, we have six more years of data. Um, in the case of uh, annual temperatures, we have six more years of data, you know, stretching back to uh, 1850 or so. Um, we also now have longer satellite records, um, so we can track, you know, everything from the thermal expansion of the sea to uh, what's going on in the atmosphere from space. Those records are now longer <clears throat> and more robust, but also uh, in the models. Um, for the last assessment in 2001, the models had been, for the most part, run once, uh, and that gives you some information, but doesn't uh, give you a lot of confidence in uh, in that information. Now we have both more models and more runs of those models, um, which means that, you know, statistically speaking, you can begin to tease out some things like best estimates, uh, which were not included uh, last time around, that right. three degrees Celsius we talked about. Right. The way, the way I've been thinking of it, I happen to watch uh, Michael Crichton was on C-SPAN last weekend, it was a a replay of a of a talk he had given i think in december and one of his uh, initial points was that you can't predict anything ever 
you you uh you can't even predict what's going to happen tomorrow so you know these predictions are are kind of ridiculous and i thought well you know taken completely literally i suppose he's correct but taking anything like that completely literally misses the point and i mean think of it in terms of baseball based on his record so far based on the the uh statistical information i have available i can tell you with let's say 90% accuracy. I'm just throwing the numbers out here. Sure. I can tell you with 90% confidence, I should say, that Derek Jeter will hit somewhere between 315 and 340 next year. Okay? <laughs> right, right. And I can tell you with 95% confidence, he will hit somewhere between 270 and 360. And again, I'm just throwing those numbers out there, right. but I, I, I wouldn't be surprised if they're not too far off. Yeah. And I think, you know, if you think about it in those terms, that's what we're talking about. Yes, there is a 10% possibility based on all the data that we're looking at that he will go out next year and hit 125. Right. But, uh, and, and sure in real life, it's much smaller than 10%, but, <laughs> but, you know, this is what you have to work with in science. You, you, you compile the, uh, the, the data as best you can. You work up the numbers. And then you, you come to some sort of a conclusion based on those numbers within a certain confidence interval. And at that point, we turn things over to the policymakers and say, this is, this is science's best understanding of things. Now it's up to you to do something about it. Yes, exactly. And certainly both, uh, policymakers and, you know, business leaders are inherently comfortable with dealing with uncertainty. As uh, Mr. Crichton said, uh, you know, you can't predict anything. So when a, say, uh, energy company decides to build a coal-fired power plant, they can't know, for example, whether there will be a price on carbon dioxide or whether, you know, uh, electricity prices will go up or down, whether that coal-fired power plant will be uh, profitable 20 years from now. Mm -hmm. But they have the best guess. And uh, that best guess is what drives their uh, decision-making. So now that they have really very, very good odds that uh, man-made climate change is happening, I mean, seriously, if you were in a casino in Vegas and they gave you 90% odds that, uh, <clears throat> you know, you were going to win every hand of blackjack, well, you'd be a fool not to take them. Mm -hmm. um, so these, these business leaders and, and policymakers now have those kinds of odds that we are, in fact, behind climate change, uh, and they would be foolish to uh, continue to ignore the problem. Let me uh, throw something here at you. I, I received a press, relief, press release from uh, something called the Competitive Enterprise Institute, and this was dated January 31st prior to the release of the abstract uh, that we've been discussing. And uh, <laughs> let me just, the headline, good news for the planet equals bad news for climate alarmists activists shun u.s climate consensus and it's uh dateline january 31st washington dc advanced details of the united nations latest report on global warming are already sending mixed signals to scientific observers around the world while the study is expected to predict climate impact significantly less dramatic than previous reports some longtime alarmists have begun to attack the report itself as flawed and bureaucratically timid. So my question is, why, why is a long-time alarmist like you not telling us the truth? <laughs> well, uh, there are two points to that. Um, one is that 
as we were talking about, this is a considerable refinement. The numbers are much more precise this time. So whereas uh, in the third assessment, uh, they gave ranges, and those ranges were quite wide from, uh, you know, a uh, uh, best-case scenario to a, a very worst-case scenario, those all those ranges have been refined and uh, honed to the point where, yes, they are smaller ranges, but they're also much more likely ranges. And uh, even if you don't have, you know, 20 feet of sea level rise or, or, or whatever it is that uh, uh, you want to call your worst case scenario, um, you do, you, 10 feet of sea level rise is bad enough if you have a house, you know, on, uh, on Cape Cod or... Uh, <laughs> Or a house in Bangladesh, or a, you know, a rice paddy in Bangladesh that you want to keep above uh, above water. The other side of that is that uh, some climate change. Uh, I don't want to use their terminology of alarmist. Some climate change, I guess, campaigners uh, do attack this report as uh, timid because it is a consensus document, and that every word is uh, negotiated between world governments. Right. Um, and uh, that leads to a very conservative document. It's a uh, drawing on all the peer-reviewed literature that has been, uh, you know, published in the last six years and and before. Um, the world scientists put together their best, you know, their best understanding of uh, of where the state of climate science is, and then uh, world governments negotiate over how to present that mm-hmm. information. Mm-hmm. Um, the weakness of that is that you end up with a conservative document. The strength of that is that you end up with a document that all the world's governments have agreed to, and therefore it can uh, stand as a basis of, okay, here's what we all understand the science to be. What what can we do about the problem that the science is revealing to us? Right. So, again, now I'm going to throw some numbers at you that are not the actual numbers, but just to get the point across – the old document might have said there's a 50% chance of a 100-foot sea level rise. Right. And the new document says there's a 90% chance of a 5-foot sea level rise. And that's bad enough. Exactly. exactly. That's exactly what is going on. And I believe that it is sea level rise that uh, those who would uh, tend to dispute climate change um, are, are focusing on because the, the range there is, uh, is smaller. Than the last time around, but that is simply a a fact of uh, precision. Well, Dave, thanks very much. I uh, hope you feel better. You did some really terrific and yeoman-like uh, spot reporting from Paris, and it's all up on our website. Uh, the last one dated February 2nd and titled Final Report Humans Cause Global Warming. Thanks very much. Thank you. And by Thursday or Friday, depending on how fast he recovers from whatever bug bit him, David should have a summary document posted on our website, and that article will contain links to the various other articles and blog items he posted from Paris all last week. Look for it at www.siam.com. Now it's time to play Totally Bogus. Here are four science stories. Only three are true. See if you know which story is totally bogus. Story one, a census of bacteria living on our skin finds almost 200 
different species of these single-celled stowaways, with some of them having been unknown to science prior to this search. Story two, a study found that users of online dating services tend to lie about their physical attributes. Story three, snakes and horses definitely don't mix, and that's especially true at Saratoga Raceway. A New York State grand jury is looking into allegations that racehorses were illegally injected with cobra venom, which allegedly deadens nerves so that the horses will run despite injuries. And story four, we've had Nobel laureates on the podcast, and we have an Oscar winner on this week, but nobody has ever won a Nobel and an Oscar. We'll be back with the answer, but first, Yoan Allen is an adjunct professor at the USC School of Cinema and Television, and he's an Academy Award-winning actor, if by actor I can mean someone who has done something requiring action. Okay, so he's not an actor-actor, but he really is an Oscar winner. Allen is a senior vice president at Dolby Laboratories, the people who make theaters shake. He's now one of a team that is being honored with a special award from the Academy for the development of something called Cyan Dye Tracks, the better to hear movies by. Cyan is C-Y-A-N. It's a purplish-blue pigment that absorbs red light, as you'll hear about. The award gets handed out February 10th as part of the Scientific and Technical Academy Awards. To find out more, I called Alan at his office in San Francisco. Mr. Alan, pleasure to talk to you today. Thank you, Steve. Nice to be with you. And congratulations. Thanks again. I understand this is, uh, this is not your first recognition by the Academy. No, we've been lucky. In fact, uh, as a company, we've picked up 10 technical awards over the years, and this is my fifth personal one. These are not called all Oscars. Only one of them is an Oscar, but uh, this time it's a special award relating to Cyan Dye Tracks. Cyan Dye Tracks on, on film stock. This is 35mm film stock. If you like the background of this, it goes back to the 1940s, which is when the first color films were made. Prior to that, films were black and white, and they were released with silver as the uh, element that that if you had enough silver, the picture looked really black, and no silver, the picture looked white. Um, and the soundtrack was made from the same silver, and the soundtrack, an analog soundtrack, worked by shining a light through the varying width of the soundtrack, and a cell behind the film, or a photo vacuum tube, generated current, which ultimately drove the loudspeaker. Mm-hmm. When people went to color film, things changed because there's no silver actually in the picture. It's just colored dye. Um, they discovered that if you had a dye soundtrack and you present it to a regular tungsten light, you know, the regular filament light, like the, our home lighting, if you like, the dye was totally transparent so that the soundtrack wouldn't work properly. There would be a very bad signal-to-noise ratio and very low-level output. So what they had to do in the 1940s was to regenerate a silver just for the soundtrack so that the conventional tungsten lamp still worked with a conventional silver soundtrack. And that process started in 1940, regenerating the silver, and went on until we managed to establish this new method of doing it with a cyan track. And talk about why that was an issue at all. Why did the, the presence of the silver on the film disturb anybody? The problem with the silver is it's it's a very nasty process. It's very complicated, and it's an extra series of steps in the lab, which is very uh, ugly, if you like, in the sense that it uses some pretty caustic chemicals and also used a huge amount of water. Um, But there was no alternative to it. As long as all the theaters used tungsten lamps, there had to be silver in the soundtrack. And not only was it wasteful environmentally in terms of water and chemicals, 
But it was also probably the single biggest cause of print rejection because it was a very tricky thing to do. The redevelopment process involved a wheel that had these sticky stuff on it or a jet, which is sprayed onto the soundtrack area. The soundtrack is about a tenth of an inch wide and it was difficult to, to make sure that the, the goo only covered that tenth of an inch and was lined up correctly. What would happen would be that uh, typical problems would be that the goo would get over to one side and you'd see splatters of the goo on the left-hand side of the picture on the cinema screen actually mm-hmm. become visible. And if it went the other way, you'd start hearing it so that the loudspeaker would start emitting what we used to call graunch noise. Mm-hmm. So I, I don't know the numbers, but it was a significant reason for print rejection. So it's not only environmentally bad, but difficult to do. But then when people started becoming more conscious of environmental problems, let's say 15 years ago, um, the, the question came up, what was going to happen in the future? So there had to be some way of not using the hazardous materials and not leaving the silver on the soundtracks because when films are finished with, they go into some kind of landfill or get smashed up. And while the, the base material can be used again or used in landfill, the silver in there, and at some point in the future, it's going to be considered pretty bad practice to throw away tons and tons of silver into the landfill. So the, the target was to come up with a different way of doing this that didn't involve this silver redevelopment process, as it's called. Well, uh, our con- major contribution to start out with in this program was 13 years ago, was the realization that red LEDs were getting really bright. This is the and kind of thing you see on the back of a bicycle. The back of a bicycle or even in the rear lamps of cars now, people are talking about using bright red LEDs. Mm-hmm. And red is the color that's easiest to get bright in LED technology. And they were getting brighter and brighter because of these automotive or, let's say, transportational uh, applications. And the color that's complementary to a red LED is cyan. And we realized back uh, 13 years ago that you could actually have a cyan dye tract just made out of dye with no silver and illuminate it with a red LED and you'd get a signal-to-noise ratio that's pretty close to what it would be with a silver on it. Mm-hmm. The uh, And that really was the beginning of the problem, which is the technology is very easy to do. You put a red LED in the projector and you just don't redevelop the soundtrack in the lab. But the problem related to the classic chicken and egg situation that the theaters would say, screw you, I'm not going to change my projector until I get cyan ditrax. Right. And the studios would say, screw you, we won't do cyan ditrax until the theaters have red lights. Okay. So everything never got off top dead center apart from huge amounts of legwork on our part when we kind of spearheaded various industry study groups and committees, uh, both in the studios and in the theaters, push, push, push for years until finally, as of, I guess, last year, we've got most of the theaters equipped and then all the studios started releasing Cyan tracks, and it's now 100% fait accompli in the U.S. That's so interesting, because this is something that the, the movie-going public probably has never even heard of. And yet there's yeah. this major technological change that happens in the theaters and at the production studios. Yeah. And to give you some clue about the environmental savings, um, one obscure way I look at it is this, is to say that if you start out with 500,000-odd prints, which there were in 2005, that's about six billion feet of film. It's about one million miles of movie film. Um, and the savings environmentally 
are such that you'd have enough drinking water to supply a town or a city of 200,000 people. And that's not in a day and a year, but it's forever, as long as, you know, it's equivalent to that much water being saved on a daily basis. So, uh, and, and it's about 2,000 tons of chemicals that are not being used. And those chemicals are just waste chemicals that are thrown out by the lab. So there's a huge environmental benefit. And, and what did you actually study when you were uh, in school? Oh, a broad range of stuff, vaguely technical. Uh-huh. Vaguely technical. So I, in England, I was studying maths and physics. Uh-huh. Well, it's, and, it's uh, then, then, but then I got into, believe it or not, rock and roll music and artist management, and then finally finished up at Dolby all the way, long time ago, 1969, taking my music background and my technical background and glued them together and found myself a new home. Right. Well, you're you're an example to uh, all the listeners that there's more than one way to win an Academy Award. If you <laughs> if you study your 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 math and physics, you might actually wind up with an Oscar instead of a Nobel Prize. You got to be able to tell jokes as well. Though. <laughs> it's a pleasure to talk to you and uh, congratulations. Thanks very much, Steve. You can catch clips from the Scientific and Technical Awards ceremony. They're featured during the regular old Academy Awards telecast on February 25th. Now it's time to see which story was totally bogus. Let's review the four stories. Story one, almost 200 different species of bacteria live on you. Story two, web daters lie about themselves in their profiles. Story three, charges that horses were illegally injected with cobra venom. And story four, nobody has won a Nobel Prize and an Academy Award. Time's up. Story one is true. A census of bacteria living on human skin found 182 different species. 8% had never been cataloged before. In fact, there are 10 times as many bacterial cells living on and in you than the number of your own cells. For more, see the February 5th article on our website called Human Skin Populated by Veritable Zoo of Bacteria. You had no doubt that story two about online daters lying was true. A study found that the majority of online dating service users lie about their weight in their posted profiles. For more, check out the February 7th episode of the Daily Siam podcast, 60 Second Science. Story three is true. A New York State grand jury is investigating charges that racehorses at Saratoga were injected with nerve-deadening cobra venom. Well, the track does bring out a disproportionate number of snakes in the grass. All of which means that story four, which claimed that nobody has ever won an Oscar and a Nobel Prize, is totally bogus. Because one talented individual did indeed garner both coveted awards. And the winner was... George Bernard Shaw, who took home the Nobel Prize in Literature in 1925 and then won an Oscar in 1938 for Best Adapted Screenplay for Pygmalion. Nobel laureate John Steinbeck came close. He was nominated for an Oscar. And, of course, it's an honor just to be nominated. Chemist Linus Pauling almost came close. The two-time Nobel laureate could have been a contender had he starred in the movie he always wanted to make, Voyage to the Bottom of the Vitamin C. Well, that's it for this edition of the Weekly Scientific American Podcast. You can write to us at podcast at siam.com. Check out news articles at our website, www.siam.com. The Daily Siam Podcast, 60 Second Science, is at the website and at iTunes. And check out the Mind and Brain blog, Mind Matters, and our general blog at blog.siam.com. For Science Talk, the weekly podcast of Scientific American, I'm Steve Mursky. By the way, this was the first episode of our second year, so extra thanks for clicking on us. 